Thanks. Thanks, Ben. Um, yeah, if, if I haven't met you, again, my name is Josh. My wife, Sarah, and I pastor the well, and we've been doing this experiment uh, for all of the summer, tall grass at the well, and so we've been uh, very fortunate to um, be part of these worship gatherings, these central gatherings, and and meet new people, and 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 just be in the in the everyday stuff of life and and ministry. And so, if you're online joining us, uh, welcome. Really gra- grateful to have you here. And of course, those of you that are here, actually, we are. Th- this is our first Sunday back, Sarah and I, uh, from vacation. We meant to be back last week. But uh, the, the good Lord provided an extra day in Puerto Rico for us, so we, we took him up on it through a flight cancellation. So um, anyway, we were in Puerto Rico. I have, I have one slide that I kind of snuck in last minute. I will not belabor you with uh, endless food because we basically consisted on fish tacos and mofongo, which is as uh, uh, crushed. Uh, it's not juicy, but uh, crushed. And <laughs> someone owes me five bucks, I think. Uh, <laughs> Crushed plantains that's fried, it's, it's absolutely delicious. So anyway, it's, uh, we were on this uh, uh, side of a mountain at the edge of a rainforest. So yeah, um, suffering for Jesus in a retreat center, but also recuperating and, and just um, having some, some, some time with just Sarah and I. There was, man, for you uh, uh, Gen Zers, there's no Wi-Fi or TV and barely a cell signal. Can you imagine that? Like what, what the heck would you even do there? What's that? You, you booed me. Yeah, I know. So they did that purposefully, not just because the infrastructure of Puerto Rico can't handle that. It's just, it's, it's, you're in a resort and the pool is like 30 seconds away and the beach is like 10 minutes away. So it was, it was wonderful. And I just want to say thank you to pastors Dave and, and Ben and, and all, of, all of you who were here last week and, and the week previous to that to allow us to have that time away uh, to travel and, and be there. It was, it was wonderful. And I, I hope I'm a, a better version of myself after that. I hope you're picking up on that. Because, uh, again, I think I read like four books because that's just all I had to do, which is wonderful. And that's absolutely my, you know, to be on the beach with a um, Kindle full of books that I haven't read yet is kind of like my dream thing, and that's what we lived out. And so we did a lot of other stuff. We went to a coffee farm, which is another like just happy place uh, that I've never been to, but it's my new happy place. Uh, and we were picking on the resort center uh, or retreat center, um, like avocados aren't just small and black. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but the avocados they have around the world, it, they were like skinny and long, and they were like sent from heaven. I, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure it was manna. Like, I, I think that's what it was. But we were picking mangoes and, and bananas right off the tree. Like, I've never had a mango that fresh, and it was sweeter than candy, literally. So anyway, okay, now that you're thoroughly jealous, we're going to move on and talk about Jesus. So anyway, so as, as Pastor Ben said, I'm wrapping up our, our series this summer through 1 John. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the way of victory. And I think before we talk about what victory looks like, we, we actually need to be aware of how we're used to defining victory, how, how our culture defines victory, and, and sometimes we come under that and assume the same definition of what victory, what, what a life of feeling victorious uh, looks like. So if you just think about it for a second, how do you define victory in your life? How do you, how do you feel good about your life? What, what defines your life when you're feeling like you have things under control and you have things figured out, you're adulting well and, and you know, things like that. Um, from, from our culture's perspective, victory means personal triumph. It means personal ingenuity. It has a lot to do with money and power. Uh, there's, for, in our culture, in, in, in the culture's mindset, 
Victory means happiness without struggle. It means that we're full of joy and there's no grief involved ever at any point in time. That's what it means to be victorious. Uh, Along with this is fame or prestige or recognition. And to some degree, from our culture's perspective, to be victorious means that there's vindication. Like you've triumphed over someone that didn't think a lot about you. Uh, So if you give me a moment just to nerd out a little bit. So the the reboot of Star Trek, the J.J. Abrams verse of Star Trek, if you remember that from about a dozen years ago. So Captain Kirk, there's this uh, new timeline because, you know, they're rebooting all these things. They basically like fork off the new timelines to, to... bring new fresh actors that are younger in, and they're just so good looking, all of them, all the time, right? That's another victorious thing. But anyway, Captain uh, uh, Kirk, or he's not a captain yet, but he's a cadet in the, in the Enterprise, or the, the Star System Academy, the, the Fleet Academy. He gets caught cheating, and he's trying to, to work around the system and color outside the lines. If you've watched like some of the old Star Trek, you know that that's what Captain Kirk was famous for, coloring outside the lines. But he gets caught, he gets busted, and he gets brought up in front of everyone, his whole class, and they're about to like expel him and not let him on. And so through a series of events, he basically saves the galaxy because of course he does. So we roll in a lot of this victorious mindset into this. And at the end of the day, he's, he gets brought up at the end of the movie in front of his whole class. And instead of being busted for cheating, he's actually celebrated as the hero that that defended the galaxy, saved Earth, saved a ship, all this stuff, right? That's what we mean in our culture by living victoriously is that you're brought up on stage and all the accolades are yours, all the spotlight is yours, all the fame is yours, and everybody that doubted you is now either won over to your side or they're uh, put in their place and they're rendered quiet to, in submission. That's what victory looks like. And the, the other side of that is our, our culture defines weakness, In several key ways, I think, for us as Jesus followers, for those of us that have either grown up in the church, we've had a a salvation moment or experience of surrendering our life to Jesus, we would define uh, uh, victory and defeat by a little bit uh, different terms. But our culture, if, if you take all those kind of big ideas of what victorious looks like, the opposite would then be true about defeat. Defeat looks like needing help. Living a defeated life looks like admitting your weakness, that you have weakness, that you've broken in some areas of your life, that you're struggling, maybe there's seasons of poverty, you're not measuring up, especially to like a sibling or maybe a college roommate or a best friend, you're, you're not, you don't have all the toys and all the stuff and all the Instagrammable family moments that they have, that seems like a defeat for us. Children who are misbehaved, Uh, subpar grades in school, either right now or in the past, like that kind of follows you around. Uh, Watching others enjoy the life you feel like you deserve or that you've always wanted. That feels like defeat in our culture's mindset. Now, when we look at the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus we know from the get-go is the way of brokenness. The the God-man defeated the works of the enemy through weakness and defeat. So we know we automatically live in an upside down kingdom. John is writing to a church that has grabbed a hold of these essential doctrinal understandings of what it's like to follow Jesus. And yet they're in a very broken and divided context. And so in that, John speaks, John writes, John tries to pastor them to help them understand what a victorious life looks like in the midst of so much 
uh, uh, distress, so much anxiety, so much brokenness all around them. So this is where we, uh, I have the task of, of wrapping up for, uh, in an entire chapter today. So we're not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to pull out some key, uh, uh, key verses for the theme that I'm going for. I will leave it to you to, to maybe read through the whole chapter to get the context. But this is what John writes, starting in verse 3. He says, and I'm reading from the New International Version, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Check that out. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So John begins the final chapter of his letter by telling the weary and this divided church what what the overcoming posture of victory looks like from heaven's perspective. We have all sorts of ways, just like they do, of defining victory and what overcoming looks like and what it means practically. And yet John drills down into what victory looks like from God's perspective. Because isn't that the important perspective to have? There's all kinds of voices in our life that tell us that we should do or we ought to be, but it's heaven's perspective. It's God's perspective who sets reality. Don't you just want reality? At the end of the day, don't you want your disillusionment to fall by the wayside to know what does God think? What is required from God's perspective? And that's what John writes to, that that kind of context. He starts by saying that demonstrable love that we can point to, that we can say that actually is love, exists in keeping God's commands. But these commands, it's not like Jesus has come to to weigh upon us uh, an extra to-do list in order to earn our way into heaven. It's not an addition to the Old Testament laws. In fact, John says that God's commands aren't burdensome. To actually partner with Jesus... To, to do his commands, we're actually empowered because of Jesus' victory to do and to be what we were designed to be. It's like Jesus came to set things right, to restore and redeem the cosmos, and our original design is restored so that the things that God is asking of us, that's what we say, well, that's, that's actually what I want to do. I need help to do that. I need your empowerment to get there. But we've been realigned to God so that walking out his will is not a burdensome thing. Now, without grace and without the power of Jesus working in our life, yes, it seems like an uphill battle. It seems like an unscalable mountain that we're commanded to to climb. But God's commands aren't burdensome for those who walk in love, who walk in the spirit. Okay? Uh, All of the law, Paul even says in Galatians, can be summed up in one word, self-giving love towards neighbor. If you want to sum all of the law up, it's love. Walking in love towards God, towards self, and towards others. To, To best a world system that is so deeply ingrained in all of our natural fallenness, we need supernatural tools to fight. We need a greater love to free us from this mess that we find ourselves in, and to show us how to live rightly, to live justly before God. So the way of life is only possible, like I said, because God has given himself in Jesus on our behalf. What we couldn't do on our own, Jesus has done for us 
and then freed us to live how we were designed and created. So the word overcome here in the original Greek is nikeo, which means to conquer, to prevail, or to obtain victory. The root word is where we get Nike, nikeo, Nike. John is telling us a life which merits the label overcoming comes not from what we're able to do on our own. It doesn't come from the world's definition of to gain, to own, to, to have power, to have accolade. That's not how John and, and scripture and, and therefore God defines overcoming. It's to be connected to the one who has overcome everything and, 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 and through his rule and his reign on earth as it is in heaven, everything becomes restored. This is deeply unsettling to the American way of life. Do you, doesn't a part of you just feel like, I have to wrestle with this understanding of victory and overcoming because what, what my job tells me, what my family of origin tells me, what advertising tells me, what everything tells me is to have and to be and to do all this stuff. And, and Jesus is saying to overcome and to be victorious is actually in connection to him. We have to wrestle deeply with that because I don't think that's, a, that's a, a one message and we flip a switch and then automatically we're delivered and we live differently. This is, this is a constant state of alert that we're under attack, that there are forces that, that, that are, are in creation that are meant to take us down and to make us succumb and, and be entangled with this world system, this worldly way of understanding. So we, through this, this Jesus-centered way, are disarmed of our illusions of what we're able to do for ourselves so that God's grace can have its full work in us and through us. And so when we walk in the way of love, we do so only now because of the connection that has been restored to God through Jesus. This is what overcomes. It's our connection to Jesus. I, I just, at the end of the day, if you remember nothing except this one thing, to be an overcomer and to live victorious is to have a connection with Jesus Christ, period. That's it. From the Bible's standpoint, from heaven's perspective, to be a victorious person is to know Jesus, to trust him, and to follow him with your entire life. That's what it means. Yes, there are seasons that feel like defeat, from the world's standard. Yes, there are seasons maybe of poverty, of maybe falling down, maybe of stumbling, maybe there are very long seasons of struggle. But to continue to say yes to God and Jesus, to continue to get up and thrust yourself back into God's arms by his grace is what it means to overcome. You may look weak, you may look foolish, but from heaven's perspective, it's the wisest thing that you could ever do with your life. So this is the upside down, inside out way of God. And what may look like defeat is God's action to bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, as I said. It means that instead of stuffing my life full of possessions to feel good about my job or you know, anything that I have or own to show off, to demonstrate I've made it. Look, Ma, I made it. it it's not about that. It's really about following Jesus. It's, it means that I, instead of stuffing my schedule full of things that make me feel productive and like I have meaning in this world, it means that I have margin. I have time in my schedule for a stranger with a flat tire. It means I have room in my budget for a gift, for an anonymous, just here, I just want to bless your family. To not stuff our life full of stuff so that we have extra for others is the way of Jesus to walk in victory. 
So the next two session, uh, sections are the landing pad of the letter of John, uh, and, and I want to take them just one at a time because there are three, three key points to walking out our victory that John touches on as he concludes his letter. And, it, and it's interesting in this letter because this, this, this theme of overcoming is really new to the letter, but it's as if John has been meaning to land here, to get here all along, to set the context all along, to get to this point of this is what it means to be an overcomer. Okay, so this is what it says. First John uh, chapter 5, verse 16, and then 18. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So first, notice that, that John starts out, he says, if any of you see a brother or sister continuing, continuing in sin. So first, to live a victorious life that is overcoming by, the, by heaven's perspective, we overcome through the community of the church that God places us in. Others in the church can come around us when we feel broken, when we feel weak, when we stumble, and can, can, can uh, encourage us forward, can sometimes carry us forward in moments of our own weakness, of our own discouragement, uh, 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 in moments of our own defeat. Church community is a gift to us that we may walk out our transformation together through the thorns and the thistles of this world that's trying to snag us and pull us back. So in his book, When the Church Was a Family, Joseph Hellerman says this, long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. And, and in, instead of grow, you could just put in there, live victoriously overcome, right? To grow means you overcome this stage of life or whatever's impeding you from breaking through, right? We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wanderlust, but we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. This is called radical individualism. What this amounts to is simple enough. We in America have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment, i.e. the world's way of defining victory, and I lost my place, so that's really embarrassing, uh, <laughs> ought to take precedence over the well-meaning of any group. Our church or our family, for example, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group. So we leave and withdraw rather than stay and grow up when the going gets rough in the church or in the home. So that's something for us. I, I don't know that I have much more to say than just that. To overcome means to stay, means to plant deep roots and to connect deeply with other people who you invite into your life. And you're, you're authentic, you're vulnerable with them. You live from a place of brokenness where you actually invite them to speak in and live into your life. Why? Because you'll both be better off for it. You'll all be better off for it. The second point is that it takes effort 
on our part to live victoriously. This isn't a let go and let God situation. This is, he has demonstrated his love towards us by sending Jesus and filling with us with his spirit so that by the empowering grace of his presence, we are empowered to overcome. And, not, not period, and it takes our yes, it takes our effort of responding to that grace and choosing to overcome, choosing to stay in the fight, choosing what, what God calls and defines as victorious. Okay? It takes effort to be on guard against the enemy because John says that the entire world is under the sway of the enemy. Like, like we have to wrestle with that. Now, I've been a, a part of, of streams of Christianity that sees a demon under every rock and behind every doorknob. Now, I'm not talking about living with anxiety because I'm constantly under spiritual attack. Like, that could be true in seasons of our life. What I'm talking about is to be alert and aware of not just supernatural demonic activity, although that's true, but how has that infested world systems that we live in and we're a part of? Because I, I know, I don't know all of you super well, but I know us well enough to know that we don't really, there's not really the Christian bubble that exists at Tall Grass at the Well. It, it's not this like sectarian, the world's way out there and we're way insulated in here, right? We have jobs in the community. There are different, you know, we have professionals, we have stay-at-home moms, we have work-from-home dads, we have all sorts of, of, of people in this group that are inter- interacting, especially through the internet and social media, with the world. So we, we need to understand how the world is presenting itself to us so we can be aware of how those systems are, are infested and under the sway of the evil one. I hope that makes sense. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay, good. Uh, every once in a while, I just like to go, are we okay? Just kind of take a breath, like just, just a mini check-in. I know you're doing okay. Maybe it's just more for me. So there have been some interesting things, insights uh, into the advertising industry that I read in, uh, recently. So if you're, if you're into marketing and advertising, maybe that's your major, maybe that's what you do, just cover your heart right now and go, he's not really talking personally about me and my job, okay? I'm talking about the bigger picture system, okay? Like what you do is probably great. You should rock that for Jesus. We need creative people in all areas of, of society bringing uh, breakthrough and revelation. Okay, so here, here's the thing. In his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer points out that advertising didn't start in downtown New York City with the Mad Men era. Advertising actually started with Sigmund Freud and his observations about what he called our unconscious drives. And so he he noted that humans, we we like to think we make rational decisions about things in our life. And and Freud postulated, no, there's all these uh, subconscious things, all these uh, uh, feelings and emotions that we actually, that's how we make a lot of our decisions in life. And so what happened is, this is wild, y'all. I'm not a tinfoil hat guy. You know this? Okay, I just have to say that. So what happened is the Nazis took note of Sigmund Freud's research and said, hey, I think we could roll that into propaganda. If people make decisions not based on rationale, but on how they're feeling, if we ramp up fear, we can manipulate that fear and cause people, cause hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to behave a certain way based on fear and anxiety, and we could just manipulate them to get our way. So the Nazis took that and rolled that into their propaganda system. And then what happened is, uh, Freud had a nephew called Edward Bernays, who was an intelligence officer in the war, and he saw what was happening, and he goes, after the war, I need a job. Well, I bet I could take this to New York City and sell it to politicians and to advertising, and he called this public relations, which is just crazy to think about, right? 
So he sold this idea of propaganda and, and he became the father of modern advertising as we know it because of how advertisers, corporations, and, and even politicians massage, <laughs> manipulate us and our emotions to get us to believe a certain way and do a certain thing. That's why today when you see an ad, they're not selling you on how useful it is or how long-lasting the product is. It's all about you're going to be happier if you buy our product. You're going to be safer if you vote for our candidate. See how that works? It's not about integrity. It's not about, in fact, I think Gillette came out with a razor uh, maybe about 50 years ago that was like this stainless steel top-of-the-line razor and they marketed it as like top of the line, long lasting. And then they couldn't sell, nobody could sell any other razors. So they actually had to pull it. Like, so the durable product that lasted the rest of the, the, the person's life was actually not feeding into the system of production. Cause when after, anyway, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> just going to stop. You get what I'm saying though, right? So just imagine what it's like for you to sit down and on social media scroll and between every two pictures on Instagram, there's, there's an ad. Not selling you something that, that could be useful to you necessarily, but selling you on how you're gonna feel if you, if you visit there or buy this or drive this or sleep with this person or whatever, right? Imagine, parents, what it's like for your teen to be on YouTube. And they're just watching, you know, my son watches on YouTube Kids because it's more curated, but he watches like people play Fortnite and, you know, sometimes he'll watch it on adult, he calls it adult YouTube, just regular YouTube. And between like Fortnite sessions where he's watching Ethan Gamer or whatever play Fortnite, because that's a thing that kids, there's a thing, you watch people play video games or you watch kids on uh, open toys. Like what, what in the world is going on? And then they, they show you an ad for the toy that just got open and then your kid wants to go to Target. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, what in the world is going on? Like, just imagine living in a world, uh, you, I, I was gonna Google this, but it's astounding, you should do this. And I'll just leave you with this, one last thought. Google how many ads per day the average person sees. Just do that, maybe after the service or something like that. It's astounding. And here's the deal, here's my point in saying all this. This world system of advertising and marketing can be used for redemptive purposes, I believe but it has been infested with demonic activity because it is under the sway of the, of the evil one. It's, it's not like Satan like, created this, this uh, principality hierarchical thing and he goes, oh, advertising is this new thing that gets left out. No, it's everything is under the sway. And to live a life of overcoming, it's not necessary to flee from every danger, not necessarily to flee and just, I'm not advocating you leave your phone behind or whatever, but it's actually to look at this and say, not as much is this good or bad, but to say, who am I becoming as I use this? Am I becoming more like Jesus? A am I experiencing a deeper connection to him when I partake of, of you know, advertising, social media, internet, whatever that is, what, looking at billboards on a, in a busy, on a busy road? It takes an alertness to our environment where we live uh, to live out of our transformed identities as sons and daughters. John says that anyone who is born of God is constantly resisting, resisting this temptation to sin. And when they do stumble, they run right into God's arms. Instead of giving themselves and saying, yeah, well, it's okay, God understands. God's already forgiven me. I prayed a prayer and I'm going to heaven. That's not the life of an overcomer. That's actually the, way, the, the pathway of defeat. 
And we have to remember this, that Dallas Willard, I love how he said this, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. So when I te- I'm saying that it takes work, that's not undercutting the work of grace. God has already worked in our life, so it takes our effort, it takes our work to, to be alert and to fight against this and to resist this so that we walk in the way of overcoming. So one final point here about how we're to maintain victory in Jesus. This is the very last line of John's letter. It's kind of a weird one, I'll be honest. First John 5.21 says this, Dear children, keep yourself from idols, period, the end. You're like, what? <laughs> wait, like, did, did you like fall asleep? Did you not like finish the letter? Like that just is a weird, here's what I think it is. I think it's John, like if you were, you know, if, John, if, you, if you were uh, uh, to, to, to shout from like a moving train in, in opposite directions to John, John, what's the point of your letter? John, what should I do to follow Jesus? This is his like bare minimum. You have to do this. Remember this one statement, children, keep yourself from idols. Now, idols, to say that, that seems weird because that seems very archaic. And it's like, what, what idols? Like, we don't have the giant statues that we bow down to. We believe in Jesus. We, we go to church. We believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So why is he talking to Christians about idols? James K. Smith says this, we become what we love. And what we love is what we worship. That's his point is that idol isn't as much of a statue, it isn't as much of a, a place that you go to bow down and, and make a sacrificial uh, a gift towards. It's actually what propels and, and has captured your heart. Tim Keller in Counterfeit God says this, when anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol, something you're actually worshiping. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know if I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. This is what the advertising community plays off of. This exactly right here, the feeling of insignificance and defeat. An idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. I think, I mean, I could almost just end the sermon with that. That is a bomb right there, right? Just like when you're, you know, when your battery is, is uh, at 2% you can't scroll anymore, right? But you're bored out of your mind. What do you start to think about? Maybe it is your phone. Maybe, maybe this is an idol. Maybe this is something you're drawn to, whatever else it is. An idol is anything you have to check with first before you worship God. That's what an idol is. And that's what John says. You have to keep yourself on guard and far away from that. Because that will draw your attention not, uh, away from not just God, but the community of God and your connection to Jesus himself. So, according to John, defeat takes on a new meaning for followers of Jesus. To, to live a life where you feel like you're just defeated all the time. Living a life lacking the overcoming grace of God occurs when we're disconnected from him. And I hope I've just made that case. So it can take many forms and it's different for every person. So if we say the opposite of what John's saying, we can actually pinpoint what keeps us from living a life of victory. So I don't know that these take much explanation, but just think about this as in a heart check. 
how much does this pull at me? How much am I partaking in these things? The first one is to, to live a life lacking in victory happens when we resist the Holy Spirit, when we resist specifically his conviction. Conviction is actually a gift. When you can feel the Holy Spirit say, no, Josh, no, please turn away from that. Or, hey, you're, you're treating that person poorly. Or, hey, you, you raised your voice to your kids and you need to apologize. Those still small voices of the Holy Spirit convicting you is actually a gift to keep your heart tender towards God and connected to Jesus. Too many times of saying no to the Holy Spirit when he brings conviction and you're headed to a life not just of defeat, but actually what the scripture calls searing your conscience where you no longer hear from God and you no longer hear or feel his conviction. Secondly, disconnecting from community. If, if, it, if living in community is a gift where we can walk together and where we can uh, lovingly and gently call each other out and call each other forward to, towards God, the, the, the go-to way of living a life of defeat is actually disconnecting from victory and doing what, what Hellerman in his book that I quoted talked about, moving from thing to thing, community to community, and, and having shallow roots. And then thirdly, uh, to live a life of defeat means that you're prioritizing something else before God. That, that something else has most of your attention. Something else in your life has a draw more than Jesus. You, you, you may go to church. You may participate in a group. You may give and serve and, and love your neighbor. But as, as I think it was Martin Luther said, the, the human heart is an idol factory. Like, like we have the tendency to just go after thing after thing after thing that's not God himself. So I, I want to touch briefly on one thing that I haven't talked about in living a life of defeat, and that's doubt. Doubt is kind of a hot topic right now. Doubt and, and what's called deconstruction. And the question is, is, is doubting, is, is having doubt in your, in, in your faith, is that living a life of defeat? Because many of us, if not most of us, would have questions about is God as good as he says he is? If God's good, why is there evil in the world? Why didn't God do fill in the blank, right? We've struggled probably with doubts in our life. And, and there are some that would say to have any kind of doubt is to sin towards God. Don't doubt. Faith means there's absolutely no doubt in your life. And if you doubt, you need to repent quickly and move on and just believe God. Now, unfortunately, I've been a part of communities where um, they try and cover over doubt with just kind of hyper faith, I would say. Actually, I was a part of a, a, a community, a ministry where they called everybody faith. Come on, faith, let's go faith. How's your faith today? And it, it just seemed like not authentic. And how I experienced it as a very young Christian is, uh, I can't express doubt in this place. I, I, have, I, I didn't grow up in the church. I, I came to faith in my, in my early 20s, but I just, I'm brand new, but I'm not sure I can ask a hard question um, I remember asking my friend one time, where's the sinner's prayer in the Bible? And I totally just did not know. I'm like, hey, I want to lead people to Jesus. So like I've heard about the sinner's prayer. Can you show me the scripture and the verse for that? And it was like, dude, you're asking too many questions. I'm like, I just legitimately did not know that's not in there. It's fine if, if you use that, but it's not in the Bible. Where is it that we can have a place, that, have you been a part of a place where it's safe to, to, to be invited in to express your doubts, to express like if you're going through a hard time and you're having problems believing that God's going to come through, have you been a part of a place like that? Because I would make, I would make the, the case that doubt 
doesn't mean that you're sinning against God. Now, what I'm not saying is that you deconstruct your faith just for the sake of deconstruction, and it's all about like the Rob Bell, you just ask all the questions, and there's no answers ever that we arrive to. If you like Rob Bell, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry, because that's what he does, right? You just kind of add, ask all these questions, and nobody has any answers. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking to holding to Jesus as the most true expression of God's goodness and love towards us. And all the false assumptions that we've grown up with because of what culture has told us or religion has told us or family origin has, has told us that we allow those to be stripped away and we ask hard questions about how old is the earth? Uh, are we complementarian or egalitarian? Is that a first tier, second tier, third tier issue? How much does that matter to God? How much are spiritual gifts? Like I've been a part of like really like hyper spiritual gift places. I've been a part of people that don't do any of that. Like, where is it that we can ask these hard questions? And I know the pastors of Tallgrass enough, and hopefully you know us well enough at the well, to know that I think we want to provide that place for people that have doubts and have questions about their faith. They have may, may have grown up in the church. They may want nothing to do with religion, and they got dragged here for pizza. But don't we want to be a place to say, hey, share your hurts, because there are a lot of people with church hurt, aren't there? that don't know that there's a place that would say, hey, I've been hurt too, and, and I'm one of the pastors. Don't we want to have a place where, that we don't call defeat and sin when someone says, I have a question? Because here's what I tell, would tell you parents. Teens and young adults are doing this right now. And we can either have a place where it's safe for them to explore and, and differentiate from, from the, the family of origin that you brought them up in. And, and I know you've, you all have done a tremendous job passing on the faith to them. But to differentiate and make your faith their faith means that there's room to ask questions and to agree to disagree. And I would say that's not defeat. When your teen starts asking hard questions and says, I don't know that I believe all of that, you haven't been defeated. It just means there, there's a safe place for conversation. And what we're really wanting to get to is the gospel that the early church practiced. And that often takes reform. That often takes a new generation rising up and saying, hey, that's hindering people turning to God. Let's just like hit pause on that for a while. Don't we want to have a place that's always reforming like that? To get down to the apostolic teaching and faith that's been passed on. As you can see, that's a rhetorical question, and I'm, I'm very much aligned to say, yes, let's do that. And I just want to invite you in, because can you imagine what it would look like in this city, in, in this region, in the Manhattan area, to be a church community that we go, hey, no matter where you've been, what you've done, where you've come from, you're welcome here to ask any hard questions. I don't know that I have all the answers, but you're welcome to come and be. What would it look like for us to be that bold in demonstrating love Love that can look at the face of, of being deflated in our everyday lives, of, of, of feeling broken and weak and saying, hey, that's not the end of the story. Uh, I've heard it said, don't put a comma where God puts a, don't put a period where God puts a comma, right? Like, can we just be a church that insists in people's stories that, hey, that's just a comma for right now. Come along for the journey and let's, let's, let's practice love together. So I'm gonna have the worship team come up and why don't you stand with us? Let's, let's prepare our hearts for worship. And I, I love to leave at the end of my message uh, just something for you to hold on to and, and to sit with the Holy Spirit and ask, 
and, and kind of a next step, how to apply this practically in your life. So this question might be something that you just wrestle with uh, in, in the, at the end of the worship uh, music here. It might be something that you even carry with you throughout the week as you invite the Holy Spirit in to speak to you. But here's the question I want you to just ask. How is God's Spirit inviting you to walk in greater victory? Where are you experiencing maybe some defeat? Maybe you've allowed something to get between you and God for a season, and he's now inviting you to lay that down or set that aside. Maybe it's that you've been defining victory by the world system, and you're now realizing, I think advertising and social media has more attention of, of my attention than God really does, and God's challenging you to do something about that. Whatever that is, I would, I would just encourage you to sit with that and ask him to move. I'd love to pray with you, so why don't you bow your heads with me? And just get, if you're at home, just get in a comfortable position as if you're gonna receive from, from God. And God, we love you. We're here uh, because of you. We're here for you. We're here to meet with you. And so I, I pray that you would increase your presence in these final moments of our, our worship gathering, our central gathering. And would you speak to us, God? Maybe about ways that we've allowed our hearts to disconnect from you. Ways that, that are pointing towards feeling deflated and defeated. And maybe it is that we've allowed our doubts to just consume us and, and you're asking us to take a step of faith to actually have action to our words. So whatever that is, God. God, we ask for the grace to be overcomers. We ask for the grace to be victorious in our faith. Jesus, we thank you for your work. We thank you that you're the one who has overcome all evil, all darkness, all sin. And we look to you for empowerment in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This teaching was recorded in partnership between Tallgrass Community Church and The Well. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church and thewellmhk.com.